0: beautiful scenery. Um, For me, as I watch it, I have one thought that comes to mind above all. I bet the allergies are better there than here. Um, St. Louis is the worst for that, but um, if you're an allergy sufferer, welcome. If you're not, lucky you. Um, As we talk about hope and uh, in a chaotic world, um, you know, I don't know if you saw it in the news, but the latest victim or target of a drive-by assault, I just came across it this week, um, was revealed to be mom's who drink wine? Uh, this is an article from GMA, and it, it talks about a culture that we're living in, where, where we kind of make light of the fact that um, sometimes moms need a little bit of help from the vino to survive all of the stresses of motherhood. And you know, there are all those mommy memes out there, like "They whine, we wine." or mommy's medicine, or you probably own merchandise in your house that says something like that. And, and, uh, and, and so this article points out that that's a dangerous culture. That's, that's a dangerous thing to laugh along with these moms who need the support of wine to get through, and that it's leading to a, uh, an increase in alcohol abuse and even alcohol addiction. And as I read the article, I thought, you know, there, there's probably some truth to that, and I appreciate the warning. I've certainly seen just probably in the same way that you have how alcohol abuse or addiction have has destroyed a lot of lives and so it's it's a serious thing. And also as I read it I had to come to grips with the fact that there are seasons of my life when I feel overwhelmed or I'm trying to numb or I'm trying to escape and I lean a little too heavily on bourbon or sometimes it's dark chocolate or Netflix. Or Instagram. Or sometimes it's just working too much, right? When stuff's crazy at home, I just want to stay at work sometimes. And that's a way to escape. And all of those things can be destructive. So I appreciate, I appreciate the warning. And yet I have a concern when I read things like this. And my concern is that there will now be a backlash against any mom who is seen with a glass of wine in her hands. As a, as a pariah or as a bad mom. That moms will become the targets of more shame and condemnation for needing to get by with a little bit of help from wine through the stresses of parenting. And, uh, and I think the last thing on earth that moms need, I know I'm a week early for Mother's Day, but I'll, I'll give you my shameless support for moms today, my shameless plug for motherhood. The last thing moms need is more shame and condemnation. Amen? Yeah. Three people agreed. Uh, at least half of you are women. I thought I'd get more, uh, I'd get more than that. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and so I may seem a little bit I may seem a little bit hypersensitive to this, but this is all driven by the fact that we are living in a call out culture. If you're not familiar with that term, you know what I'm talking about. We're living in a time where everyone is a whistleblower ready to call out someone else for their behavior whether it's unethical behavior or immoral behavior or just impolite behavior we're, we're a culture where everyone is getting called out whether it's moms who drink too much wine or men who are too flirty or parents who let their children you know have technology if if you let your kid touch an iPad you know you'll get called out for that cuz that's bad or god forbid people who use plastic drinking straws And I love the oceans too, but we're in this culture where we're just getting called out left and right by whatever the cultural sin of the day is, and and we're like a culture of prophets, self-appointed prophets, where we're calling down fire from heaven on anyone who violates the latest and greatest uh, sin of the day. And it's not just the sin of the day, it's the sin of the hour, it's a moving target, isn't it? And in this call-out culture, I think what we're finally starting to discover is that none of us are safe. The New York Times ran a story not too long ago, an an opinion article called The Cruelty of the Call-Out Culture, and it was about a woman named Emily. She was a part of a punk rock band. She was the front woman, and she was in that band with her best friend, and they were touring up and down the eastern seaboard. They were on their way to a tour where um, some news broke on social media. A woman accused her best friend and bandmate of sending a harassing picture. And Emily knew this guy for years. They'd been in a band for years, but she turned on him in an instant and she went to social media on her own and she called him out as an abuser. She said, I disown everything he has done. I do not think his actions are okay. I believe women. And that post went crazy. The guy lost his place in the band. He actually got shunned from the music scene. Later on, he lost his job. There were rumors that he got kicked out of his apartment, had to move to a new town, and was not doing well. But Emily never spoke to him again, and this was her best friend. That's, that's how powerful the call-out culture is. But that's not where the story ends. Uh, sometime later, there was a guy that Emily went to high school with who remembered who she was in high school and that she was quite the cyber bully in high school. She had said some really unkind things about other students and had um, just bullying behavior. And so uh, he had proof of that, and he crafted his own post a short time later, calling her out for her behavior a decade before. And that post also went viral, and people turned on her. She lost her place in the music scene. She lost all of her friends. She describes just not leaving her house for months because she felt so much shame and condemnation. She felt scared and alone. See, that's the double-edged sword of the call-out culture. And sometimes I wonder if we as Christians are to blame for fueling this culture. I think it's safe to say, whether we're to blame or not, I think it's safe to say that for a lot of us, I think we believe that calling others out is our duty It's our birthright. As people who who possess the truth of God, I think we kind of feel like it's our responsibility to call people out when they're not abiding by the truth and to point our fingers and to let them know when they're missing it. And isn't that even what the scriptures encourage us to do? Today, we're looking at Revelation. I want to look at Revelation chapter 3. It's kind of where we've been starting in this series to these letters that Jesus himself speaks to a group of churches I want you to see his words. He says, this is to a church in Sardis. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. This is, he's dictating a letter to them. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains isn't an about and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent, you know, turn, turn back to me, that's what repent means, do a 180 and turn back to me, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. Jesus is calling people out, you see this? In fact, in all of these letters to the churches, most of the time, here's Jesus' pattern. He says, hey, this is what you're doing well. You're doing a good job. Good job here. But this is where you're missing it. You know, like, good, like a performance review. Hey, this is where you're doing great. Now let me tell you what you can do better. Here, he doesn't even do the pleasantries, right? He just jumps in. and He says, hey, you've got a reputation for being alive. You're dead. Wake up. Otherwise, I'm going to come and visit you and it's not going to be good for you. He's calling them out. Now, this church in Sardis, let me just talk to you a little bit about Sardis. Um, Sardis is a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're one of seven cities, thus the seven stars, or in other parts of Revelation, the seven lampstands. These are the churches of God who were intended to bring light into a dark world. That's what we're still here to do. And yet, this church in Sardis... Um, They kind of have a unique situation going on. All of these churches are living under persecution and pressure. Um, They're being forced to worship the emperor over in Rome. They're getting persecution from their countrymen down in Jerusalem for accepting Jesus. they're They're living under incredible tension and chaos and pressure. Now, Sardis was a city that had a gleaming past. There was actually a gold rush in Sardis. Gold was found in a river uh, nearby their town and so it became this place where imperial coins were minted and it was an important place of trade. Uh, There was a big earthquake in 17 AD that leveled that city and many others. Sardis got one of the biggest uh, relief aid uh, packages from the emperor in Rome. It was a beloved city. But in the day that this letter was being written, a bunch of years after that, Sardis was now a city that was on the decline. They had a remarkable past. And they were still drafting off that reputation, but the reality was different. I don't know how many of you were kids of the '80s um, and grew up hearing about the, you know, the amazing place called Daytona Beach. Anyone remember that? It was like the spring break capital of the world, and it was amazing. And my 10-year-old mind, I thought like Daytona Beach, that's amazing. My 30-year-old body went there a few years ago. I'm past 30 now, but, and I realized that how the mighty have fallen. Anyone been to Daytona Beach? You're like what's all the hype about this place? I mean, that's Sardis. Obviously, you've not been to Daytona because you'd know what I was talking about. Um, that's Sardis. It was a city that had a great reputation. They had a glorious past. But they had outlived their past and they were still drafting off of that reputation. And it wasn't just the city, but that was also the church. They were suffering from the same problem. Their reputation didn't match their reality. They had a reputation for being bi- vibrant and alive. And yet Jesus calls them out, and He says, "You know, it's not true. You're dead. You're, you're nearly dead. You, you need to wake up." He says. He calls them out, and I think this is where I think this is where it often gets confusing for us. Maybe even dangerous for us, because we see Jesus calling these people out and we think okay that's what we should do that's that's our job our job is to call people out we're supposed to be like jesus and so our job is to go out into the world and call people out when they're missing it we're we're going to we're going to call them out but we forget one simple thing we forget who is speaking Who's doing the calling out in Revelation chapter 3? It's not one Christian calling out another. It's not one leader calling out another. It's not one person calling out another. It is Jesus calling out his church. Look what he says again. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Who has the sight of God, the vision of God, but Jesus See, Jesus sees not just our actions, but he sees our motives. He sees when we are are setting out to do something good and we fail, he sees that our intentions were good. He sees that when we're doing things that other people think are good, but our intentions are evil, he sees that too. He has the insight and the vision of God himself, and so he is right when he calls out. He is right when he judges, because he sees deeper than just our actions He sees down to our very being. He knows us. He knows our hearts. And when we think we can do the same job of Jesus here, that's when things get really ugly. Because we don't have the same vision. We can't judge people's actions, let alone their motives. We can guess, but how how do we know what someone's motive or what their heart actually is? And when we start calling people out, instead of making them better, we often make them Worse. And when we join into this call out culture, or when we feed it or we fan it into flame, instead of making the world better, we make it worse. I just heard recently from someone who came to one of our Getting Started classes that his experience of church was going into church and just leaving feeling horrible, feeling beat down, feeling like a failure. And isn't that what it so often becomes in our culture? We're trying to make people better, but when we call them out, we make them worse. And and more personally, I think this is even more dangerous, when we're so focused on what everyone else is doing and calling out other people for their misdeeds, that means we're taking our eyes off our own journey, our own walk. And we'll ourselves find ourselves living in, in hypocrisy, not paying attention, asleep, unaware. See, Jesus is justified when he does this. We make a mess of things. And if we think that a call-out culture is what we are equipped or um, commissioned to do, if, if we think it's from God, it's not. When, when God does it, it's okay. When we try to do it, it's actually coming from another place. I wanna, we'll go back to Revelation 3 in a minute. I want to jump ahead to Revelation 12, because this is the fun part of Revelation, the weird part that um, I think a lot of us really get excited about. And, uh, and, and it says, it helps us see where this call-out culture comes from. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. By the way, if you didn't hear Doug Moss's message last week, you've got to go back and, and watch it. You've got to go back and listen to it. Um, he gave me, sitting here, insight into a Revelation that I have never had before. As he described what the function of all of this really vivid, crazy, um, symbolic imagery is, uh, and and I won't spoil it. You just need to go back and watch it because it forever changed the way I'll see Revelation, including this stuff. But he did say it's kind of like, kind of like comic books give us an understanding of truth. This revelation is a uh, comic book. It is the comic book genre or the comic book part of the Bible. doesn't mean it's not true. It means it's expressing truth in a way that we kind of know from the comic books. Anyway, go watch that message. I'm doing a bad job. I'll just stop talking about that now. Okay? Deal. Um, He says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Again, I mean, just really rich, almost superhero imagery. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. And she was about to give birth. So this woman is, is kind of, maybe you could think of Eve in the Garden of Eden. This, uh, this woman who's the mother of all the living. That's what Eve means. Or maybe even think of Mary from the Gospels. Um, later on, we're going to see that this woman also represents not only those things, but also the church. Um, so she's, she's, ready, uh, she's pregnant. She's ready to give birth. She's in labor. Now another sign appears in the heaven. An enormous red dragon. Of course, it has to be red, right? Because, ah, red. With seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. So again, that's a way of saying this is, this is a dangerous creature. Seven-headed dragon. I mean, powerful. And it's got political power. That's the seven crowns. It's got military power. That's the seven, uh, ten horns. And so this is, this is an enemy that you should not take lightly. In fact, look, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. This is a bad, bad dragon. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And you would think that this woman and this child does not stand a chance except, it goes on, says she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule, see if these words sound familiar, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and To his throne. So, you following this? this? This child comes into the world, and, and, the, and this, this, uh, this this dragon, is ready to just to devour him. And he has a plot against him to destroy him, but the plot fails. And this child who will rule with an iron sep- scepter is snatched back to sit at the right hand of God. Goes on. Says so the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. This is where we see kind of the woman, maybe representing even the church or the faithful to a place prepared for her by God. So the wilderness isn't a great place to exist. It's, it's tough in the wilderness, but there is some preservation that happens there. So she finds this place of preservation uh, prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days, a symbolic number from Daniel describing the amount of time between the chaos that uh, the people of God were living in in Daniel's day and the coming of the Messiah. So it's kind of like the second coming stuff. Then the scene changes again. Then war broke out in heaven This angel war, Michael the archangel, he's a military commander of the angels, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, the dragon, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. So so the dragon loses, and he's thrown out of any position of power or influence. He's cast down, and we find out more about the dragon. That dragon is the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan or Satan. Who leads the whole world astray? He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. They triumphed over him, not by military strength, not by fighting fire with fire. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Not by making a great stand. But look at how they triumphed. Look at, look at how the victory was won. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Also that male child who's now sitting in throne next to God. Same guy, right? The blood of the lamb and by the word, the word of their testimony. Right? Not, not, through, not through bloodshed. Not through organizing tactics, not through making great stands, but by the word of their testimony, by the witness of their mouths and their lives. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. There's a lot here. That's why we don't ever teach on Revelation. There's too much, right? we um, we got, we got um, a woman. We've got a dragon with all these heads and crowns and horns. We've got an angel warfare. The lamb makes an appearance. There's this male child. So Jesus shows up a couple different ways. Um, but here's what I want you to notice. That this dragon, and we find out who the dragon is. It's the ancient serpent from the Garden of Eden who led our first parents astray. That's what he does. It says that he leads people astray. He's the devil. He's the Satan. He's the one who sets out, sets out to destroy what God has done and to destroy the people of God. And, and we kind of know that. He's the enemy of God, and he's got great power. With his tail, he can knock out a third of the stars. So he's got power, even though someday he will be cast down. See, this is a reminder to us not only of who our true enemy is. You, you know why Jesus says we can love our enemies? The people who come at us, attack us? The people who call us out and make life miserable for us. Do you know why Jesus says we can love our enemy? Because they're not the real enemy. They're just under the sway or the influence of the real enemy. So so Revelation 12 shows us who the real enemy is, yes. But it also shows us what his tactic is. So yes, he's powerful. Yes, he wants to devour. Yes, he wants to destroy. But did you notice what his tactic is, what his strategy is to do that? Did you notice how specifically he goes about trying to destroy us? So a word I highlighted. I there are a lot of words I highlighted. He accuses. Remember seeing that word there? He's the accuser of God's people. He accuses them before God day and night. He accuses. Isn't that interesting? When we're living in this culture where people are so quick to accuse each other, and even when the accusations are just, we're so willing to to condemn one another and to point the finger. Who do you think's behind this call-out culture where so many lives are being destroyed? Do you think this is something that God wants? Do you think God's name is behind it? Do you think he's out to destroy people and to crush people? It's a reminder to us of who our real enemy is. Revelation 12, it tells us who the enemy is, that ancient enemy. It reminds us of what his tactics are, that he's the accuser. And when we accuse, we're not doing a godly thing. When we get involved in accusation... We're not doing a godly thing, and yeah, I mean, there's a place, right? There's a place Matthew 18 talks about in the church, how we deal with people who've sinned against us, and we go and we show them their fault. But it's not, it's not accusing; it's correcting. It's bringing people back to the truth. It's helping people find restoration. It's never accusing. We know where accusing comes from. It's not from God; it's from another place. But through Revelation, we also discover some, I think, really important wisdom about how we as people who are living in a culture that is filled with accusation where people are being destroyed and torn down left and right where no one is safe we're given some instruction on how we survive. We know where this comes from. It comes from that ancient dragon. We know that's his tactic in warfare. That's what he loves to do best. We get that, but how do we survive? How do we live in this culture and not be taken down with it? How do we not let ourselves be destroyed while we wait on the time where the angels of God throw him down and cast him down and he has no power anymore? How do we get through it? Revelation 3 tells us how. So so we have this group in Sardis being called out for having a reputation that doesn't match the reality. Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're almost dead. Wake up, you know, come back to life. But there's another group in Sardis. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, Sardis was a city that also dealt with in wool. What color is wool? Just a quick check. I know you don't raise sheep, but what color is wool usually? It's white, it's white. So this might've had special meaning for them. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, Dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, I think next what Jesus is doing is he's helping us understand in a culture where everyone is being called out, where it's only a matter of time before someone finds junk in our lives, and we all have junk in our lives, to label us as as immoral, sinful, flawed, broken, worthy of condemnation. It's only a matter of time until that happens. Jesus is showing us how we can find blamelessness, how how we can survive a call-out culture unscathed. And the answer, he says, the answer to doing this is to walk with me. See, walking with Jesus, that's the answer. You can't change the culture. You can certainly not join in and do what the culture does. You don't have to get on the side of the accuser and start accusing other people. You don't have to be a part of that culture. And and I think the church needs to just just get out of that business. We're people of grace, not a people of accusation. But it shows us also, if we want to survive living in a culture like this, what we have to do. And the answer is walking with Jesus. That's the only way. Now, in the church, when we talk about walking with Jesus, I think we get this confused. We often start talking about walking like Jesus and so we say, you know, hey, if, if you want to be blameless, then be blameless. If you want to, uh, you know, escape condemnation, then you need to be righteous like Jesus. You need to be pure. You need to live your life in an innocent way. You need to, you, you need to, you need to, you need to, right? You need to walk in a sinless way like Jesus did. And we're not talking about walking with Jesus at the point. We're, not, we're now talking about walking like Jesus, which is not what this says. It's not, it's not the answer. See, instead, walking with Jesus means something else. It means, because we're all people on a journey already, it means having the wisdom and the humility to invite Jesus into your journey. Rather than saying, I got this, saying instead, Jesus, I, I want you to come and join me. I want you to be my companion as I walk through this journey. More, I want you to be my shepherd to guide me, to show me the way, Tell me find my way, Tell me live with greater integrity and justice and not to live in hypocrisy, to have a reputation that matches my reality as much as possible, yes, but even more than that, more than guidance, it's inviting Jesus into your journey to be your strength. To cover you with his grace. See, that's what it means to walk with Jesus. That's what walking with Jesus looks like. It's not walking perfectly. You can't walk perfectly. If there's one good thing about the call out culture that we're living in, it's this that we all realize that, that none of us are innocent. Right? It's only a matter of time before the accuser becomes the accused. It's, none of us are innocent. None of us can walk blamelessly on our own. Walking with Jesus means something else. And when we invite Jesus into our journey, and we say, Jesus, I need you to be my companion and I need you to sh- guide me and shepherd me, but I also need your grace and your strength to cover me. Then we're on to something. Even in a culture where, where everyone's got plenty of blood on their hands, we will be the ones, at least in God's sight, who will be dressed in white. We will be the ones who are worthy, labeled worthy. Now, i got to take a quick diversion here because all this talk about clothes, um, it reminds me of something. Has anyone ever had the experience of trying to dress up a young child, maybe preschool age, in nice clothing? I've never had that experience. It's a traumatic experience, isn't it? Um, my first experience with this probably, um, I, was, I was young, I was getting married, and um, this actually a picture my wedding day. That's me, but I didn't need to tell you that because I look exactly the same, I know. Um, this is uh, 19 years ago, and these guys down here, <laughs> that's cute, isn't that? it? My cousin Austin, or my wife's cousin Austin. Uh, these two guys are my nephews, Drake and Holden. Actually, Drake's getting ready to get married, so time has flown. Um, but Drake and Holden, they're twins. They're about four, a little over four in this picture. They were in our wedding as ring bearers. And so we dress them all up in these adorable tuxes, and, and I mean, they, they were so cute. And then we go to our reception venue, and at our reception venue, it's kind of these historic grounds, some Henry Ford property. You've heard of that guy, right? Um, and, uh, and 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 outside of the uh, the carriage house where our reception was, there was this really grand old fountain that people use as a as a kind of wishing well, wishing fountain. And there came a point in the night during the reception where these two handsome, innocent, little, well dressed guys were found standing in the fountain in their tuxes with hands full of people's wishes. So excited. I mean, they were like leprechauns at the end of a rainbow. They thought they found a pot of gold and they were so excited and they didn't understand. They didn't understand. And my my brother-in-law, you know, was so frustrated. They didn't have a change of clothes. He had to go home early. It was kind of a downer for them. All the rest of us thought it was really funny. I wish I had a picture but I can see it so clearly in my mind. And I realized that day, I realized that day that there is this tenuous relationship whenever you try to take a little kid and you put them in nice clothes, it's probably not gonna end well. But I also realized that it's not because they mean to, they just don't know, it's, it's they're unaware. And I've had the same experience with my own kids, right? (laughs) Try to dress up a kid nice for Easter or Christmas or anything else. And its they just want to mess it up. They want to destroy what you've done for them. And and so, you know, it's like dripping ketchup or wiping Cheetos or running out in the grass. And when a toddler runs in the grass, you know they're going to fall in the grass. Like it's just, I mean, the same is also true with girls up to about five, boys up to about 15, right? Um, And and so you just know, like, they they cannot do it. But it's not because they're evil. Well, I mean, maybe a few of them are, but... It's because they're unaware. And I wonder if this is the problem with the church in Sardis. See, I don't believe that in Jesus calling them out, I don't believe that there were people who were setting out to intentionally deceive people. I don't think they had a PR machine to try to convince people they were great when they weren't. I don't think they were trying to be deceptive. Instead, I think over time they had just become unaware. They'd begun to fall asleep. They'd become apathetic. Because here's what we need to understand, that that these clothes, these clothes of white that we see Jesus talking about in Revelation 3, these clothes... The nice clothes, they're never earned. They're never made for yourself. You don't don't do that. You don't clean them up. They're always given. Just like with kids and their parents, they're always given. You don't make your own clothes. And, And those clothes that God has given us, they're given by God. And they're nice from the beginning. We don't have to clean ourselves up. And again, that's so often what Christianity becomes. Clean yourself up. Get your act together. Then you can walk with Jesus. But that's not the way. See, it's walking with Jesus that gives us the nice clothes. It's, it's when we come to Jesus, when we invite him in, when, when he makes his home with us, that he covers us in clothes that are gleaming white. And, and in spite of the reality of our lives, he declares that we are now blameless and perfect in his sight. But man, it is hard, isn't it? Even when you've been given nice, white, gleaming clothes, it's hard to keep them clean, and it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of notice to keep them clean. You, you can't keep them nice if you're, if you're not aware, if you're not awake. And so the call from Jesus to Sardis, and I think the call from Jesus to us, is wake up. See, everyone in this room is being offered the chance to be dressed blamelessly. To use the metaphor in, in clothes of gleaming white, and the one thing needed to receive that gift is to walk with jesus in fact it 's not just the one thing needed to receive that gift, but that 's the key to keeping all of those clothes nice. See, jesus is not just the one who who equips us with with nice clothes and gives us blamelessness, but he's the one who keeps us in a state of blamelessness. Do you know this? That walking with Jesus is the way that you keep the the stains and the soils from life, even the actions of your own life. That's the way you keep those things from sticking. He is the great stain eraser. He is the Scotch Guard for people who remember what that stuff was. And the only way you're ever gonna get through this life through a call-out culture who is so quick to point out all of your mistakes and shame you for them and remind you of them every day and, and to put a scarlet letter on your chest for the things that you do, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the only way you'll make it through alive is to keep walking with Jesus. Letting him do for you what only he can do. Letting him not only teach you about what it means to live a life of integrity, to live a life of justice, to live a life not of hypocrisy, but, but a life where your reputation and your reality come together. But, but only Jesus can take even the most well-intentioned person who's trying to do their best and is failing. Only Jesus has the power to make sure that even when we're trying our best, the stuff doesn't stick, it doesn't stain. He is our great stain eraser. See, here at Pathfinder, uh, we want to be known. We care about our reputation and we want to be known not as a group of perfect people, but we say this, we're bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. I say that the only kind of person who probably isn't gonna like it here, isn't gonna feel comfortable here at Pathfinder is the person who argues this point, who thinks they're already perfect, who wants to stand on their own, who, who thinks they're doing pretty well. We are unashamedly imperfect because we understand that far more important than being perfect is walking with Jesus, letting him lead us to a whole life, letting him wash us and make us clean, letting him speak a better word over us than the word of an accusing culture, a word that we are loved and forgiven, a word that we are his, a word that though our sins are like scarlet, He has come to wash us white as snow. So if you want to survive a call-out culture, yeah, live a life of integrity, live a life of justice. I mean, that's what God wants for us too. But if you want to survive a call-out culture, you have to do something else. You have to learn what it means to walk with Jesus. I want to show you how Revelation 3, this part of it, ends. This is what Jesus says. He says, the one who is victorious, if you want to know how to be victorious, here's what you'll do. You, You, like them, will be dressed in white. And he says, I will never blot out the name of that person, another stained image. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And when Jesus acknowledges your name, when Jesus acknowledges your name, that's enough to silence every other accusation. He goes on, he says, whomever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Today, if you have ears to hear, I invite you to to hear the word Jesus speaks over you, for it is not an accusing word. It is a word of invitation. He wants to walk with you. And He wants to speak over you that you are a son, you are a daughter, and though you are imperfect, He can teach you more about what it means to live in wholeness, integrity, innocence, purity, and life in what He says ultimately goes. We pray, Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken a better word over us through your son, Jesus. A word of hope, a word of restoration, a word of forgiveness and grace. And God, today I I just ask that you'd help us hear that word over every part of our lives, that we would receive it. God, I pray further that you would give us the courage to invite your son Jesus into our journey every day, not having been content to have received a a nice set of clothing from him once in our lives, but to truly learn what it means to walk with him, to receive his guidance and direction, to let him shepherd us, yes, but also to let him continually wash and cover and clothe us again and again as we seek to do our best. as we fail. Through Jesus, Father, through walking with him, give us the blamelessness and the purity that we so often seek and help us survive and be victorious in a culture that is quick to tear down. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen.